So we're in week three of our six-week series on, um, yeah, I need to see a little people. There we go. Oh, there they are. Yes. I got a little worried there for a second. Everybody left. It's the rapture. Um, I need to ask you a question. How many of you, when you were a kid, were told to be average or less? Just aim for average. You know, when you go get your grades, don't go for an A, go for a C or a D or a D minus. Anybody been told that? When, when you play sports, did anybody tell you, don't be the best, just be average. If you're gonna play, you know, in, in, um, in a district, don't, don't try to win the district, just be average. Anybody like that? Anybody told to be average? I actually did have one person in the first service that, that was told to be average. I don't want to be an average church. A college graduate doesn't want to have an average job. Um, how many of you want to have an average marriage? I mean, ladies, the, the guy proposes to you and says, we just, I, I want to have an average marriage. How many of you would go, yes, that sounds good. An average date? You want to go on an average date? No, you don't want to do that. Um, nobody stands at the altar and says, I want to be average. I'm going to love, I'm going to love you half of my life, half of the years, 186.5 days, um, in a year or 87.5 or whatever it is. Um, nobody says that. Nobody, no, by the way, do you want to have an average bank account, an average American bank account? I told you a few weeks ago, the average American lives on 102% of their income. So there's no savings. If you're going to be average, be like the Japanese. They save 25% of their paycheck. That would, that would be an average to, to go for. The deal is nobody, nobody really shoots for average, right? You don't want an average vacation. Nobody wants to do average but we want to blend in with everybody else. So if you want to blend in with everybody else, what you're really saying is you want to be average. Well, let's talk about everybody else for just a minute. Um, Everybody else wants their life to look like a beer commercial, right? Have you noticed in a beer commercial, everybody looks good. There's no average looking people in a beer commercial. The sun is always shining. Um, They don't have real jobs. Um, they always have a drink in their hand because after all, it's five o'clock somewhere. Got a few more country fans in this one. The early service, they didn't even know what I was talking about. What? It's five o'clock somewhere. There's no average looking people in here, right? You can't, you can't do that. Sun's shining. They don't have real jobs, all that stuff. They don't have debt. They don't get old. They have no worries. Everybody wants their life to look like a beer commercial, except, except when you think about this. Do you believe for a second that these people have no problems? No, not for a second. So um, if we were, the reason we know they have problems is because they're people, right? Humans have problems. So you would, if you were to dig beneath the surface, you might see that their marriage is on the rocks. You might see that somebody's about to go bankrupt. You might see that they're in debt or, or something. You might see that, that everybody else is trying not to turn out like their parents, which pushes them to turn out like their parents. Yeah. Okay. You're with me. Everybody else is looking for more because they don't even stop to enjoy what they already have. Everybody else drinks too much or pops little happy pills, whether it's legal or illegal. And people go, man, they're so full of joy and it's not joy. (laughs) Yeah. That's not joy. That's intoxication. That's medicating their pain in a world where everybody else in the world of everybody else, single women worry that they'll always be single. So they troll with their bodies. And then they wonder, why does every relationship end up the same? Why do I keep attracting the same type of guy? In the world of everybody else, single guys are like, why would I want to get married if I got all the benefits of marriage without getting married? But then somewhere when they're, when they're in deep introspection, they go, how come I keep attracting crazy women who have daddy issues? Right? These single guys are thinking, if I, if I'm gonna get married, I want a perfect woman. I want a woman who never cuts her hair. 
That's a big deal. Janie would just go and cut her hair. I like long hair. And she'd come home and she'd go, you like my hair? And I'd go, no. <laughs> You're supposed to leave it long. Yeah, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff and I are on the same page here. The, the, the single guy thinks, I want her to be perfect. And I want her to always be perfect. Don't cut your hair. Don't, don't ever wear sweats. Yeah, I'm just opening up a can. I know, I know, I know. So we'll just, we'll go on. So here's the deal. Who, who wants to be like everybody else? And if you noticed in the beer commercial, they always hold it, pour it, but they never drink it. I think that might be a great first step for some of y'all. We could just stop right there. Say amen. Some of your spouses are going, yeah, don't ever drink it. Okay. Here's the scary thing in our world. Nobody knows what they're doing in our world because everybody's getting their cues from everybody else. And if you get your cues from everybody else, who do you turn out like? Everybody else. Your heavenly father doesn't want you to be like everybody else. And and when you do that, all you're doing is you're taking your cues from their highlight reel. You don't see that they have bad breath in the morning. You don't see that they have, you're just seeing the peaks, right? Their car is always clean. They always seem to have money. Their marriage always seems to be going good. But if you go behind closed doors, you, you would see arguments. You would see some, you would see if somebody doesn't get checked into rehab, they're about to have a divorce. Everybody has problems. You don't see that, that, um, their children are constant source of heartache. You don't see that maybe they haven't had sex in a year and that causes all kinds of problems. You, you don't see that, that they're about to fall apart. We only see the outside and see happy outside doesn't mean happy inside, right? Have y'all learned that? You can't see the bad memories. You can't see the hurts, the habits and the hangups that are on the inside and see no one ever told you that trying to be like everybody else was so exhausting and expensive and it leaves you empty, right? Well, your heavenly father wants more from, for you than just being like everybody else. He wanted more for Israel in the book of Judges. So we've been studying the book of Judges and and we're going to go back there. Actually, we're going to go back to the last part of Joshua one more time. And, um, we're going to look at what, what the problem was because see Israel was in the promised land. This should have been the greatest days in the history of the nation. They'd been waiting for hundreds, thousands of years for the promised land. They're now in the promised land. So what happened? Israel had the same problem you and I do. Israel's really good at looking at everybody else. Really good at looking. They have something I don't have. and They get to do something I don't get to do. Right? That's what Israel did. And, and Joshua had told them, he said, here's how you're successful. Here's how you get to keep the promised land. This is in uh, Joshua 23 verse 12. But if you turn away from him and cling to the customs of the survivors of the nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry with them, then know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out of your land. Instead, they will be a snare and a trap to you, a whip for your backs and thorny brambles for your eyes. Could Joshua be any more explicit here? If you don't obey God, if you intermarry, and it had nothing to do with race or anything with that, it was all religious. God says, I am the one true God. I will not share my people with anyone else. If you go and you do these things, these people will be a snare. They'll be whips for your backs and thorny brambles for your eyes. I mean, that's pretty descriptive. And then look what he says. And you will vanish from this good land. The Lord has what? Given you. Okay. God wants to give you good stuff. Hold on to that for a second. See, there's no middle ground. You're either going to go with God or you're going to go with the the idols of the Canaanites. It's the same with us. There's no middle ground. You're either going to have God as the one true God, the one true king of your life, or you're going to try to mix a whole bunch of other kings in your life. We talked about that last week, the little kings. So let me ask you this. 
Are there some things in your life you wish you could unsee? Right? Now, here's a generic one. Your car is just fine right now until a buddy comes up and they're in a brand spanking new car and you get in that car and it smells like new car. And you get back in yours and yours smells like family. And you're like, this will never do. If you just hadn't seen the other car, yours would have been fine, right? There's all kinds of things. We, we wish we could have unseen pornography. We wish, wish we could have unseen certain people or certain situations because that caused us to go the wrong direction. Well, if it's true that there's, there's certain things you wish you could unsee, are there certain people you wish you could unmeet? I had these friends, right? And that's when I got in trouble. And, and, you know, some of you, 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 your, your mom said, do not go out with that dude. You had this little red flag and you're going, there's something wrong. He's kind of off. And then all your friends are going, no, he's really off. You need to run away from him. And you're like, no, 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 I love him. And I'm going to do what's best for me. And this whole thing of, I'm going to do what I want to do. You thought it would bring freedom and really it brought a trap. It became a snare and you became enslaved to it. It led to bondage. Well, here's, here's the reason. Things that capture our attention will eventually affect the direction of our lives. So here's how we say it. Attention precedes affection and that determines direction. If you don't see something, then you don't develop feelings for it. When you develop feelings for it, it's just a matter of time before you go there. Right? I remember seeing Janie. She was cute. Just a little bit of time. I said, ah, I need to pursue that, right? Okay. Our direction is very often determined from the outside in. We see something, we desire it, we follow it, it becomes a snare. See, the Israelites were looking around, they saw other things, and they said, we want what they have. They said, they, be- they believe this lie. If we obey God, God's going to keep something good from us. All right, this is what Satan says. God w- God's trying to keep something good from you. You deserve it, Israel. God says, no, 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 if you obey my laws, not only will I keep something bad from happening to you, I will give you something good, something better in return. God had given them the promised land. It was the best land on the earth. He'd given it to them. That wasn't enough for them. They started looking around. So you need to ask two questions if you're going to determine whether you're going to follow God or not. First of all, is God for me? Scripture tell us over, tells us over and over, God is for you. God is for you. He declared that on the cross. Four weeks from today, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So 2,000 years ago, he, he drove this stake in the ground that says, I love you this much. I love you enough to die for you. That never changes. God is for you. Satan whispers, God's not for you. You have to decide. What are you going to believe? Second question is this. Is God keeping something from me? This is, this is the oldest temptation on our planet. It goes back to Adam and Eve. When, when the serpent came up, he planted this little seed. He said, he said, did God really say, if you eat from that tree, you'll die? You're not going to die. God doesn't want you to be like him. God's trying to keep something good from you. And then he says, did God really say that if you eat from that tree, something bad about to happen? Country song. Carrie Underwood. What's that other chick? Oh yeah, Miranda Lambert. Yeah, Miranda Lambert. Something bad about to happen. Satan said, no, something bad won't happen. Something good will happen. God does not love you. God is not for you. So he plants all of these seeds. And and Eve goes, oh, it looks good. I'm going to take that. And she sins. See, 
Israel looked around and said, God's keeping something good from us. So we're going to go follow after them. Now here's Joshua. Joshua had told them the key before they ever went in the promised land. And this is the key for you today in verse 23 of chapter 24. Now then said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and do what? Yield your hearts. It is a heart condition. Yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. If you yield your heart to God, you will follow God. If you yield your heart to little gods, you're going to follow little gods. If you yield your heart to to a drug, you're going to follow that drug. It's whatever gets our attention, then gets our affection. That determines the direction of our lives. So here, here's what I want you to understand. The kingdom of God is an, is a kingdom of conscience. It is an inside out kingdom. It's different than any other religion in the world. Every other religion, follow these things, do these things, don't do these things. And you're a great person. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is inside. It's conscience. The Holy spirit comes in, you gives you discernment, gives you wisdom, and then you're able to act according to that. See, I've been praying this prayer for several days and, and I suggest you start praying this if you want to, if you want to follow God. God help me to see as you see so that I can do as you say. I prayed this morning. God help me to see everybody that walks in here as you see them because then I will treat them like you treat them. When you're trying to make up your mind about what you should do in your life, God help me to see as you see so I can do as you say. Because if I see as God sees, then when what God asks me to do makes perfect sense. Do you get that? If God says go off to Haiti, that makes perfect sense if I see as God sees. You have people who say, why would you want to go to Haiti? Because God wants me to go to Haiti. That's why I go to Haiti. I see as God sees, then it makes sense. Because if I, the other side of that is if I see as the world sees, then what the world does makes perfect sense. Do you see why the, the church is so radically, should be so radically different than the world? We see as God sees. They can't possibly see as God sees. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit living within them. The kingdom of everybody else is a kingdom of covet. It's an outside in. So I'm trying to define for you the difference in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of everybody else. You don't want to be like everybody else. And see, everybody knows that a healthy inside makes a healthy outside. If your spirit is healthy, then you're going to be healthy. That's why Satan attacks your soul. Because he wants to pollute you on the inside. And he usually does it from folks on the outside. Squeezing you into their mold. If the outside is, if the spirit is healthy, the outside is healthy. If the spirit is unhealthy, the outside is unhealthy. What you do is unhealthy. Now in the book of Judges, there's more peaks than valleys. And, and, and I've told you before the last few weeks that, that they went through this cycle. They would disobey God. Disaster would come upon them. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a deliverer, but it doesn't really come back up here because they don't come a hundred percent back to where they're following God with all their hearts. It goes more like this. Disobey, disaster. They cry out to God. They come to here. Disobey, disaster. They cry out to God. They come here. It's this downward cycle until the end verse, the last verse in the book of Judges says, in those days, Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That's the result of living a kingdom of covet where I'm looking around and I'm saying, I want what they have instead of what God has for me. So I told you last week, chapter one of Judges is is Israel's description of why they weren't able to drive everybody out of the promised land. It's a bunch, uh, it's a bogus story, but it's their spin. Chapter two is when God says, oh man, here's really why you were unsuccessful. And, and we're going to continue in that. Chapter two, verse 18 of Judges. God's explaining what's going on. The Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but did what? God doesn't hold anything back. 
prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. See, what Judges teaches us is is we need something better than a human judge who dies. They would follow God as long as the judge was alive, but as soon as the judge would die, their spiral would begin again. And and see, we're not going to find a leader in in the book of Judges who doesn't die. We're not going to find a leader who can save the soul as well as the body. But if you know anything about scripture, if you know anything about what we celebrate four weeks from today, you know that there is a judge, there is a rescuer who died on the cross, who was laid in the tomb. He was raised from the tomb after three days, never to die again. We get to celebrate that judge. Judges reminds us that human leaders are going to die, but we have a, a leader who never dies. So God called this, this worshiping idols prostitution. And here it is bowing to anything or anyone other than God is prostituting yourself before God. See, the greatest danger for Christians is not that they'll become an atheist. The greatest danger for Christians is that they'll prostitute themselves with many M-A-N-Y gods and M-I-N-I miniature gods. And they'll ask God to coexist with those others. And God says, no, it's all or nothing if you're going to follow me. And if you want to know, if you ever want to know, if you have an idol in your life, you need to ask yourself a couple of questions. And I don't mean like, you know, I've got this little mouse thing here. It's my laser pointer that I can help show you on the map where things are going. I don't mean an idol where you bow down to, oh, little mousey, whatever. I'm talking about you put something on the throne of your life that you worship more than God. If you want to know if you have one of those, ask two questions. First thing is, am I willing to do whatever God says in this area? So like you have a relationship, everybody in your family says you shouldn't be following that relationship. And and you know, in your heart, God says, don't follow that relationship. And you say, I'm following the relationship. That relationship is a God. I'm not willing to do what God says or or God says to quit a job and do something else. I'm not willing God, because I don't trust you, God. I'm not going to do that. Are you willing to, the second question is, are you willing to do, um, whatever God says about this area? I'm sorry. Are you accept, are you willing to accept whatever God gives in this area? So for example, you're praying for a job. God brings a job. Well, God, that's not big enough. You're praying for a car. God brings a car. Well, God, that's not good enough. You're praying for a spouse and somebody comes up that, that has all of the attributes of someone following after God. They're not good enough. Then you're saying, God, I'm not going to follow you. I want to follow my own ways. And you've prostituted yourselves with something with other gods. You see, Israel did this over and over. And here's what they did. They forgot who God was. We talked about this last week. And they served many miniature kings. And every time the Bible says they served a miniature king, God gave them up. The worst words in the Bible is God gave them up. It means God removes his hand of blessing, his hand of protection from you. And you're on your own. You don't want to be on your own in this world. God gave them up. To a king that could, he could have easily defeated. And it's a sad reminder that we have spiritual ADD on Sundays or at youth camp or at Trace Diaz or whatever. We say, Oh God, I worship you and you alone. And we get home, we go, Oh, we get, we start looking around. Oh, hang on, God. I'm going to chase this for a while. I'll get back to you next Sunday, maybe six weeks from now, maybe six months from now. I'll come back. And God says, That's not how it works. It's all or nothing. Israel chose the other king. So we said last week, we read it where their, their first king who took them over was King Rish, uh, Cushan Rishathaim. 
They were in slavery for eight years. Yeah, that's hard to say over and over. And I actually say it two or three times here and I shouldn't. So we pick up in verse nine of chapter three, Judges three. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. He always raises up a rescuer when you cry out in sincerity, when you cry out in humility. He raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for how long? 40 years. And then look what happens. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, did what? How dare he? I love Othniel. He's, he's Caleb's nephew. I love Joshua and Caleb in the Old Testament guys that serve God. Othniel served God. You, he's the type of judge you would expect God to pick because he was faithful. He went up against these guys that are considered giants in the land and he took the city and, and Caleb had said, if anybody goes up and takes that city, I'll, I'll let him marry my daughter. And so Othniel got to marry Caleb's daughter. Awesome, awesome guy. And the peace they had was real, but the peace didn't last because Othniel didn't last. And it just reminds us again, we need a judge who doesn't die. Well, fortunately, we know one. We've heard of one. Revelation 118, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in the grave. We have the, we, we're fortunate because we get to look back. They should have known from everything God had done. They should have known. They knew that the savior was coming. But they kept turning back to their old ways. So when Othniel dies, the cycle begins again. Look at verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did, Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies. Then he went uh, out to, and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. What's the big thing about Jericho and the promised land? Do you remember the first battle? The very first battle. And the promised land was where? Jericho. The first battle in the promised land was where? Oh, y'all are so smart. You read your Bibles. And here's the thing. The battle, I I use that term loosely. The battle, this was the, from a human standpoint. See, this is where if you see as God sees, then doing what God says makes perfect sense. But if you see as the world sees, then doing what God says doesn't make sense. Because God told them, here's the military strategy. This walled city, I want you to walk around it the first day. The whole nation, walk around. Nobody says a word. Can you see the people on the wall? What are they doing? They're walking. First day, they walk around, they go back to their camp. Second day, they walk around one time, go back to their camp. And they're going, what are they doing? They're doing the same thing they did yesterday. Idiots. I mean, that's what they have to be thinking. If you're, if you're seeing as the world sees the last day, the seventh day, God said, walk around seven times. And then what are they supposed to do? Shout. So they don't even use their weapons yet. They shout. And you know what the scripture says? The walls fell down so that everyone on the outside came in. Here's the amazing thing. Rahab had helped the spies come, you know, uh, to, to spy out the land. So Rahab was, was, um, spared her house was spared. So every bit of the wall fell down except Rahab's house. I mean, this is miraculous. So if you see as God sees, it makes perfect sense to follow God's laws. The battle, they did nothing but walk and shout and they won. 
that's why it's so significant to me that when, when this king gets other kings, they come and they take over the city, the first symbolic city in the promised land. That's how far the Israelites had fallen in the book of Judges. That even, even the city of Palms, Jericho. Now, Jericho, the walls weren't back up. They hadn't rebuilt the walls. There was a curse on that. But they had reoccupied the land. And I think it's a big deal that these guys come in and take over land. Now, the Moabites, put that, that map up there. You see, Moab is right here. Ammon is right here. And, of course, there's some strange stories. You need to read your Bible to figure all of this stuff out. Uh, Moab... They come through the Lot's older daughter. Ammon is, is related to, to them, but through Lot's younger daughter. Here's the significant, significant thing. They get together and they overrun this land and they come over here to Jericho. They follow the exact same route that Joshua did when the Israelites came into the promised land. God is saying, I'm re- removing my hand from you and you're going to suffer serious, serious consequences. So... That we find out that they are, they are in subjection to these people for 18 years. The very first one, they were eight years in slavery. This one, 18 years, somebody finally says, hey, why don't we talk to God? So look at verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. Seems like he does that every time his people cry out to him. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man. That's funny to me. A left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to the king of Moab. It's strange that he says left-handed, and, and you're going to find out why in a minute. Because in the scripture, the right hand was a source of power, the source of prominence. Jesus is at the right hand of the, the father. He said, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But he gives us the detail that this man is left-handed. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And he must have been some leader in the tribe of Benjamin in order to be chosen to take tribute to the king. And the tribute was probably gold and silver and animals. So he and a bunch of guys take all of this stuff. And and then you see the second twist in the story, verse 16. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. So now you understand why being left-handed was an advantage for him. Because in swordsmanship, if you were right-handed, you would have your sword in your scabbard on the left and you would pull out your sword from there. So your weapons would come across your body. And so in this situation, he wouldn't be doing that. And you can see that a security guard would be looking on the left side. He put the dagger on his right thigh and you begin to think, well, okay, is he, is he going to be found out? Is somebody going to catch him or is he going to even get close enough? Cause it's only a 12 inch dagger. So you got to be really close. We'll find out. Verse 18, he brought the tribute money to Eglon who was very fat. I'm, I know the rest of the story. That's why I'm laughing. So you'll see why why that's a big deal here in a second. After delivering delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. So, so he doesn't get caught, but he also doesn't get close enough to use it. All right. Look what happens next. Uh, oh, I already said that. So um, when he leaves, he goes to this place called Gilgal, and Gilgal is is significantly important in the in the history of Israel. They had several meetings there where they gathered as a, a people and they met with the Lord there. And in chapter two, when the angel of the Lord comes and tells them why they've been unsuccessful, he comes from Gilgal. So Ehud goes to Gilgal. He for some reason, he turns around. We don't know if he met with God or not. He turns around and he comes back and he says to the king, I have a secret message for you. The king sends out all of his messengers. And now we get to verse 20. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached to his left hand, reached his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and he plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. 
So Ehud said, I ain't pulling that out. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger and the king's bowels emptied. Everybody go, ooh. No, say, ooh. Thank you. So he locks the doors and he escapes. Now here's, here's the kind of funny part. And I'm not reading this verse, but it actually says in the scripture that his servants come, find the doors locked and they they don't want to go in because they think the big man is relieving himself. The Bible actually says they think he's going to the bathroom. All right. So verse 25. So they waited because big man needs some time to go to the bathroom. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor and the kingdom freaked out. Now Ehud runs out and he grabs a trumpet and he blows the trumpet and he gathers all of Israel, um, or at least all of these folks to, to all these fighting men. And look what happens in verse 28. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan river across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day and there was peace in the land for 80 years. This is the longest amount of peace in the book of Judges. After Ehud, Shamgar of Anath rescued Israel. He once killed Philistines, 600 Philistines with an ox goat. That's all you get from this judge. The first judge, you got a lot, you know, this judge, you, you just get one verse. An ox goat is a stick about eight feet long, has a pointy end and, and you kind of move the oxen along. So yay. Shamgar killed 600 people and then he's done. Um, And then look what happens. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. When will God's people ever learn? When will we learn? I mean, that's, that's really why we're studying the scriptures is to learn what we need to apply to us. We're just like them. See, Ehud shows us that God wants to to raise up a deliverer, a rescuer through an unexpected leader. He wants to rescue his people through an unexpected leader. And and even though God rescues us over and over, every time we cry out, because your stories, I've heard a lot of your testimonies, your stories are, I messed up, I cried out to God, he saved me. I messed up, I cried out to God, he saved me. When are we going to quit messing up and give our hearts fully to God? When are we going to be committed to God? I'm committed to my wife. So I do things to make her feel like she's number one. And I don't do things that would make her feel like she's not number one. Why don't we commit to God the same way? All of, all of the judges point us towards Christ because he was an unexpected leader. Did you realize that? Sometimes I don't think we realize that he was an unexpected leader. Look at Isaiah 53 two says this. My servant, talking about Jesus Christ, grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root uh, in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Jesus was an outsider. The world didn't believe that he was God's son. The world didn't believe that he was God's rescuer to save lost people. There was nothing that, that, that shouted out other than the spirit of God was upon him. He did miraculous things. He raised people from the dead. He healed people. One boy he healed from 38 miles away. So distance didn't matter to the son of God. And people wouldn't listen. Because he didn't look like they thought a leader should look like. He came from Nazareth. And they they, they had a joke. They said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And, it, and the answer was supposed to be no. They, they made fun of him. And yet he is God's chosen Savior, rescuer of the world. And so here's the message for today. 
God wants to use you to help rescue someone you know from the pit of hell. See, God doesn't save you just so that you can be saved woo, and have fire insurance and go to heaven. Woo, that's all nice. If that's all he wanted to do, as soon as you got saved, you'd go to heaven. There's somebody in your world that needs to be rescued and you know who it is. And God wants to use you to help them come into the kingdom of God. And you're like, oh, I don't know enough. I, well, look what the scripture says about that. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in this world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Do you know why God uses people like us, people who, who aren't the, the richest, aren't the smartest, aren't the best looking, aren't the, the wisest people. He uses people who are weaker spiritually and physically and mentally and emotionally. You know, you want to know why he tells us in, in first Corinthians one twenty nine, so that no one can boast before him. It's not about me. Someone comes into the kingdom. It's not about me. It's about my God. When we worship, it's not about me. It's about my God. He wants to use you to reach somebody for Christ. You are supposed to be one that helps rescue others. See, we're citizens of an inside out kingdom. And, and, and you know this, you know that your greatest regret happened when you allowed outside influences to determine the direction of your life. You know it. So let's become a people who depends on the Holy Spirit and let's work from the inside out. Let's ask God to help us see as he sees so we can do as he does. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? You know that outside in doesn't work. You don't want that for your children. Your heavenly father doesn't want that for you. So how many of you would just admit real quickly that, that you have been a person who has, has made choices based on outside influences that you knew were wrong? Can I see your hands? Yeah, that's almost all of us. So let's draw some lines in the sand and say, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to give my heart to God. I want to, I want to look to God. Quit looking around at everybody else. It doesn't matter what everybody else does or says or, or wears or drives. What matters is you will stand before God. You will give an account for your life. I think you want that life. I think you want your heavenly father to say, good job. We'll make some choices now that, that will result in that. Father, we pray that you would change our hearts and our minds, that you would allow us to see as you see so we could do as you say. If we just got that right, we could lead so many people to Christ. Help us to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.